0: I want to begin by telling you a story that is almost too good to be true. It's the story of William Montague Dyke. As the story goes, young William, at the age of 10, was in a tragic accident that took away from him the gift of his sight. But he was a a strong person, and that did not stand in the way of him going on to have a brilliant university career or during his university days from falling in love with and winning the love of the daughter of a british naval officer and the two of them were engaged to be married not too long before the wedding there was an opportunity for him to go uh, undergo experimental eye surgery the surgery was performed bandages were placed over his eyes and William, who must have been a true romantic, insisted that he did not want those bandages to come off until the very moment of his wedding, so that if his sight was restored, the very first thing that he would see, the thing that would fill his gaze, would be the face of his beloved. Well, the day of the wedding came. Uh, There were many prominent people there, courtiers, even members of the royal family. They were in the cathedral for the wedding, and up at the front of the church stood William and his father who was standing with him and his surgeon with a pair of scissors in his hand. And the strains of the wedding march filled the sanctuary. The bride walked down the aisle. The bandages were removed, and you can imagine the sense of suspense in that worship services, people waited to find out what, if anything, William could see. And they heard a little gasp, and they heard him say, Oh, my dear, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. Now, I say that story is almost too good to be true. I had heard that story in a sermon, and I had tracked it back to a published source, but I was still a little suspicious, and so I did a little research I discovered that William Montague Dyke was a real person, a descendant of Charlemagne the Great, no less, but I also learned that he died in infancy. So he never reached age 10, never went to university, fell in love with a beautiful woman, or any of that. But when I hear that story, it points me to a gospel truth. One day we will see Jesus face to face. We are in this love relationship in which we are betrothed to our beloved. And the day will come when the bandages of sin and all of the things that blind us in this fallen world will be removed. And we will be able to say truly what William Montague Dyke only supposedly said, you are more beautiful, Lord, than I ever imagined. I've been meditating somewhat on this theme of seeing Jesus over the past year because we have been at Wheaton College in uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and have taken as our theme verse for the year 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 8 and also 1 Peter 1 verse 9. And I want to read some of these verses for you this morning. They express the deepest hope of the human heart to see... The Unseen Christ. First Peter chapter 1. I'll begin reading at verse 3. And this is probably the most important thing that will happen to us this week. We will hear the Word of God. First Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, And then note these verses. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, when... Peter says here, you have not seen Jesus. He is saying something about the people who first read this letter and saying something about all of us that was not true of him because he had seen Jesus. Don't you wish that you could see some of the things that Peter saw as an eyewitness apostle, as one of the disciples that walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus? I mean, Peter was there at Cana at that wedding, when Jesus performed his first miracle and turned the water into wine, he saw Jesus perform miracles, including the healing of his own mother-in-law. And Peter was there out on the lake one dark and stormy night when he saw Jesus walking on the waves toward him. These are some of the things that that Peter saw. And really, he saw almost everything that we read about in the Gospels. The the all-day sermons and the late-night chat sessions the crowds by the seashore the conflicts in jerusalem the the meal times they shared the miracles that were performed all of these things were things that that jesus uh, that peter witnessed in the life of Jesus. He was there up on the mountain with some of the other disciples when Jesus was transfigured before them and when in radiant splendor they saw the Son of God in the white heat of His divine glory. Peter saw all of that. And he saw, too, the events of the last week of our Savior's earthly life. He watched Jesus betrayed, arrested, beaten, condemned, crucified. And then almost before he knew it, he was running to the empty tomb and all he could see there was the the burial clothes in which Jesus had been buried because Jesus had already left the empty tomb But Peter saw him again before the day was over. He saw the risen Christ in his resurrection body. And then just a month and a half later, he saw Jesus in his ascension to heaven, his return to his Father's glory. These are all things that Peter saw with his own two eyes as a witness of Jesus. Oh, don't you wish that you could see what Peter saw? But we can't, of course. And this is a kind of problem or difficulty or at least a challenge in the Christian life that we live between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ, and so we cannot now presently see Him with our bodily eyes. It's a challenge not only for the believer in Christ, but also for the unbeliever who wonders whether there really is a Jesus and if he really is the Savior that the Bible says he is. And sometimes not seeing Jesus can cause us to have our doubts. This is something that happened in the lives of some of Peter's friends. I think, for example, of Nathaniel, who right at the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus had his friend Philip run up to him and say, we have found the Messiah, we have found the Savior. And when Nathanael frankly doubted that this was really true, Philip said to him, come and see. And Nathanael wouldn't believe in Jesus until he met him in person and saw for himself. You see, here's a man for whom seeing was believing. Or think of Thomas, of course. Maybe the most famous skeptic of the early church, he was that one disciple who for some reason was not with the others in that upper room when Jesus appeared to them on the day of his resurrection, and for more than a week afterwards insisted he would not believe that Jesus had come back from the dead until he could see it for himself. And I can easily imagine the more the other disciples pressed him and tried to convince him, the more stubborn he became. He said, I'm not going to believe it unless I can see the nail prints in his hands. And of course, all it took for him was one glimpse of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he did believe. He fell down and worshiped. He said, my Lord and my God. That's another man for whom seeing was believing. And people are sometimes hard on Thomas for his skepticism. But I find it easy to sympathize with the man. He was like a a disciplined scientist who wanted more evidence. He wanted to see for himself. And remember the blessing that Jesus gave, not a blessing for Thomas, but really a blessing for us. He said to Thomas, if you believe because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. You see, believing without seeing has God's blessing. But I say that's a challenge for us because many of us find it easier to believe what we can actually see. I remember having a a serious conversation with a man like this at at a nursing home where we were doing ministry in Philadelphia. And this was his major objection to the Christian faith, that he could not see Jesus. And if somehow I could produce for him a Jesus that he could see, then he would believe. That was his position. Some people want to have more evidence about Jesus before they commit their lives to Him. And some of us, even if we've committed our lives to Christ, would like to have a little more evidence and reassurance to really trust God for the, the trials that we are having. Putting our trust in Him not only for salvation, but for all of our plans for the future. It's, sometimes it's hard to see what God is doing in your life, and that makes it hard to have faith. We're in the longest of all long-distance relationships No Skype, no Facebook, no text messages. We do have the Word of God, of course, but sometimes we turn to it and it doesn't speak so directly to the questions that we have or the direction that we seek. And there's also prayer. We communicate to God through our words, but sometimes it seems like we have prayers that don't go answered, or at least not answered the way that we were hoping and in our suffering, it's easy for us to wonder whether God really cares. We can see all of the dark places in the world and maybe the dark places in our own hearts where the gospel doesn't really seem to be making a difference, and it's, so it's easy for us to doubt that God is really there. Worshiping an invisible Christ is at least a challenge, if not a problem, for Christianity. It certainly seems that way to non-Christians. Not long ago, when the anthropologist Tanya Lerman wrote a book about evangelical Christians and their spiritual experiences, she was trying to describe how people outside the Christian community looked at people of faith, and she commented that outsiders often find Christians to be out of touch with reality. Here's the way she expressed it. How can sensible, educated people believe in an invisible being who has a real effect On their lives? That question is a test for our faith. It's a challenge in our evangelism. Some years ago when Charles Coulson uh, gave an address on apologetics at the Harvard Divinity School, he spent about half of his lecture giving evidence for the existence of God. And afterwards, uh, Professor Henry Nowen, and some of you may be familiar with uh, Henry Nowen's books as well, Chided Dr. Colson for belaboring the obvious. Christianity is like marriage, he said. You can explain that you love Jesus the same way that you love your wife. Yes, Henry, Colson replied, but they can see my wife. They don't need me to convince them that she exists, but they do need reasons to believe that God exists because they cannot see him. His point was that seeing not seeing makes it hard to To believe it's a struggle for non-Christians, and it's also a struggle for Christians loving a Savior we have never seen. The more we think about that challenge, the more remarkable it is, I think, to receive the affirmation that Peter gives in the opening chapter of his first epistle. Notice again, verse 8, I tried to highlight this verse for us. Here is the apostle's voice ringing across the chasm of time and eternity, and it makes this astonishing statement about our relationship with Jesus. You have not seen Him. Nevertheless, you love Him. You are in a love relationship with a Savior you have not seen. It would be, I think, amazing enough for Peter to say that we believe in Jesus, and he does go on to say that. You have not, you do not now see him, but you believe in him. But he is speaking also to the heart and saying it's not just that we that we believe in Jesus, it is also that we love him. Now, at the time that this letter was written, Peter was speaking or writing to the global church of his day. Christianity had spread across the Roman world like a kind of benevolent virus. One person had shared the gospel with another person, and that person in turn had shared the gospel with someone else, as you're being challenged in these uh, ten ways to share the gospel this summer, to be part of that ongoing contagion in the world, the contagion of Christianity. But what it meant for the recipients of this letter is that they were in a situation that Peter was not in. These people were not, for the most part, eyewitnesses of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. They had come to trust him later, maybe through the direct witness of the apostles, but maybe through a church that the apostles had planted, or a church that one of those churches had had planted. They were at some remove from this eyewitness testimony and put them at a kind of disadvantage. Peter was reflecting on this as he wrote this letter. They were in a situation he was not in. There was a difference between the way they knew Jesus and the way he knew them. He had seen it all, the Sermon on the Mount, the feeding of the 5,000, the Last Supper, Gethsemane, Calvary, the, the gaping hole in the garden tomb. He loved what he saw and loved Jesus because of it. But now he sits down to write this letter of encouragement to other Christians, and he is amazed at their affection. People who had never seen Jesus, but nevertheless loved him. And that's particularly amazing if you catch a little glimpse here of the kind of situation they were in, because if you look at verse 7, Peter talks about people whose faith is being tested by fire. Or back up in verse 6, people who who are grieved by various trials. They're, They're going through some season of severe difficulty, probably because they're being persecuted for the cause of Christ. This is the context in which Peter expresses his admiration that though they have not seen Jesus, and in fact, even though they are suffering many difficulties in life because of their relationship with Jesus, nevertheless, they continue to love Him. The difficulties of life have not caused them to walk away from Christ, but toward Him. These things were producing hope and Joy and the assurance of everlasting life. These people had a fire tested faith. And if you have ever experienced fiery trials, you know how challenging it is to believe and not to doubt. Perhaps you are grieving the loss of a loved one or burdened by a broken relationship. Perhaps you're anxious about your financial circumstances. Many people are. Maybe you've been discouraged because you have not achieved a goal that was very significant for you. Or maybe you've, you've suffered some of the embarrassment that comes when people criticize you for following Christ. And all of that can make it harder, not easier, to follow a Savior you have never seen. So I think it's helpful to ask, what... Enabled Peter's friends to keep believing without seeing. Well, it's not anything they did for themselves or anything they produced out of themselves. It's really what God did for them and in them. I think it's significant here, right from the beginning of this passage, right there in verse 3 and following, that the apostle is praising God the Father for the blessings He gives through Jesus the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit. This is one of those places where you see all three persons of the Trinity working together for our blessing. All of the blessings in this passage are things that God does for us to keep us in the love of Jesus. I'll mention a couple of them briefly. He causes us to be born again. That's expressed in verse 3. He has caused us to be born again. He has sent the Holy Spirit right inside us to give us new spiritual life. And so we don't have to try to love Jesus out of our own limited love. He Himself comes into us to give us that love which we express back to Him in return. I always think how amazing this is that God does not leave us somewhere out here to respond to him and believe in him and love him. He comes right inside us by his Holy Spirit to enable us to do those things. A few years, a few years ago, I was amazed at some very obvious and significant spiritual growth in the life of one of my children. I was expressing it to a friend. I said, It's almost like uh, an alien has come to live inside this child. I mean, who is this person? And I realize, in a sense, there is an alien. It's the Holy Spirit who comes right inside to bring a transforming change. It's part of this life-giving work that the Holy Spirit does. I remember as a, a young boy hearing the story of, of Nicodemus, a, a story my father read to me one night at bedtime, and Jesus was talking about this new birth. And there was a a response in my heart. That was what I wanted. Whatever this was, I didn't really understand it, but but I I wanted it. And God wants to give you the gift of the new birth. This is one prayer He loves to answer. If you go to God and say, give me this new life that you promise, that, that you send by your Spirit, that's a prayer He loves to answer. He'll bring that change into your life. So that's one thing God does. He causes us to be born again. Verse 3 goes on to talk about a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is something else that God gives us to keep us in love with Jesus. Unless there is life after death, there is no ultimate hope for anyone. But on the third day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God the Father raised God the Son from the dead and that gives the hope of eternal life for everyone who trusts in Him. This is the living hope that Peter is talking about here. We know this is true because we have the testimony of Peter himself and the other eyewitness apostles who saw the risen Christ and gave their testimony in the Word of God. When we talk about the hope of eternal life, we're not just guessing but we are basing that hope on the solid promises of the Word of God. This is what God does to keep us in love with Jesus. We are born again by the Spirit. That's something God has done in the past for many, maybe most of us. We are promised resurrection life in, in, God, in God's Word. That's something God will do for us in the future. But there's also something God does for us in the present, and that is protect us By His power, Peter talks about that in verse 5. You are people who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You don't have to wonder or doubt whether God will really save you in the end. He is exercising His protective, guarding power in your life right now. It's past, present, and future from beginning to end. God is doing everything He needs to do to keep us in the love of Jesus. The Scottish theologian Thomas Boston, one of those worthy old theologians, gave a beautiful illustration. He compared the protection of God's love to the security that a baby has in his mother's arms. And Boston, who was a father of ten children, had observed this in his own home, that although babies sometimes hold on, There are also times when they wriggle and squirm and try to get away. And the important thing then is that the mother does not lose her grip. And that's what our our love relationship with God is like in Jesus Christ. God keeps His arms around us. This is His protective power. And so even if we sometimes struggle to get away, He keeps us in His love. But now, having said that, there are things that we can do to respond to the love of God and to grow in our love for the unseen Christ. You you are born again by the Spirit. You have the hope of resurrection life. You are held safe by the power of God. These are living realities of your faith. This is what God does to keep you in His love. But there are some things that we can do to see Jesus and in seeing Him to grow more and more in love with him, I, I use the word see. I'm not talking about literally now. In fact, the whole point of this passage is that we can't see Jesus now, literally, but there are ways that we can see him, so to speak, metaphorically, ways that reassure us of the reality of his love, and I want to mention just two of them. We see Jesus every day in the beauty of of His creation. This is one of the things Steve DeWitt tries to help us with in in his book on beauty, giving us eyes to see the beauty of God in the world around us. Jesus Christ is the Creator God, so anything good or beautiful you see in the world around you testifies to His love. I wonder what beauty of Jesus have you seen in the past week. I was thinking about this last night and just uh, trying to remember what some of the beautiful things I saw just this last week. The bright orange flash of a beautiful oriole uh, rising up to perch in a tree. The sun coming through the storm clouds. Yes, I did see a little bit of sun this week. Uh, bright shafts coming down through dark clouds. I was uh, admiring the beauty of Rose buds that have not yet blossomed, but you can see the bud in the flower. And these are in our rose bushes at the front of our house that uh, go all the way back to the 1830s when the first president of Wheaton College and his wife moved out to the Midwest. And these are cuttings of cuttings from the original rose bushes. And we planted them last year, and we were hoping to see flowers this year. I can see that emerging beauty. We see beauty like that around us in creation. We should give praise to God. It should awaken within us a growing love for Jesus who made us. A compelling story of the way God used the glory of his creation to bring a man to faith in Jesus Christ is the story of Louis Zamperini. Maybe some of you have read that story in the amazing biography, Unbroken. Zamperini was an Olympic track star a survivor at sea, a prisoner of war. He had many remarkable experiences, but the turning point in his life came in 1949 when he heard Billy Graham in his famous evangelistic crusades in Los Angeles just a few years after he graduated from Wheaton College. And Dr. Graham was asking the question, why did God allow the world to suffer the ravages of war? And here's how he began to answer that question. He said, if you look into the heavens tonight... On this beautiful California night, I see the stars and I can see the footprints of God. I think to myself, my Father, my Heavenly Father hung them there with a flaming fingertip. And He holds them there with the power of His omnipotent hand. And He runs the whole universe. And He's not too busy running the whole universe to count the hairs on my head. And see a sparrow when it falls, because he is interested in me. God speaks in creation. Louis Zamperini heard those words. They reminded him of his encounter with God when he was lost at sea for 47 days during World War II. Dying of thirst, it seemed. Drifting aimlessly in the doldrums on a tiny raft. And one day he looked out and... The ocean was perfectly still and he could see the entire sky reflected on that glassy surface. And suddenly a fish leaped and broke the surface of the water. And it was an image of such compelling beauty that Zamperini was filled with a sense of awe and gratitude, gratitude to a God he had never truly worshipped. And As the old soldier continued to listen, Billy Graham said that God's invisibility is one of the truest Tests of our faith. Will we believe or not? In order to see who know to know who sees him, God makes himself unseen, Billy Graham said. And Louis felt God pressing in on him. He wanted to run out of the the service, but as he began to head for the exit, he suddenly remembered a rash promise that he had made to God when his companions were dying of thirst and sharks were circling the raft. He said, If you will save me, I will serve you forever. And so instead of running away, Louis went forward that night. He gave his life to a Savior he had first seen in creation. That night he went home and he poured his liquor down the drain and he dumped his pornography down the garbage chute. And he was a changed man from that point forward. Next day he took a Bible and went to a nearby park and sat under a tree and read all day. And that's another place, a second place where we see Jesus, it's in the pages of Scripture. Here is our love letter from home in which our Savior tenders to us His affections. When you read the Word of God, you're not getting someone else on the line, but hearing the voice of God Himself. And so if you're having trouble seeing Jesus or find yourself doubting the love of God, go back to the Bible where God speaks and helps us to see Jesus, what what power written words have to sustain a relationship between distant lovers. Earlier this year, I was reading a remarkable example of that in correspondence recently published between Svetlana Ivanova and Lev Mishenko, a man who was imprisoned in Stalin's gulag in the Soviet Empire. Over the course of eight years, they exchanged... 1,246 letters. That is quite a correspondence. In one of her letters, Vetlana wrote, we are 29 years old. We first met 11 years ago. We haven't seen each other for five years. It is terrible to spell out these figures. I know you will do all you can, Lev, so that you can meet me before another five years pass. How many times have I wanted to nestle in your arms but could only turn to the empty wall in front of me? But we will get through this, Lev. And they did get through it. They were reunited. Their love survived. And what enabled its survival was the written word. Here's what Svetlana wrote in another one of her, her letters. The point of all of this is that I want to tell you just three words. Two of them are pronouns. And the other is a verb. Maybe you can figure out what those words are. And she said, I want you to read those in all three tenses simultaneously, past, present, and future. They are the same words Jesus has written to us in the Bible. I love you, he says over and over and over again. I loved you in the past. I love you now. I will love you forever. This is the assurance of God's love. It's a place where we see the love of Jesus and a place that calls us back to love him in response. It is the Word of God. And the more we see Jesus in creation, in the Word, the more we will grow to love Him and to long for the day when the bandages will come off and we will see Him face to face. Understand the problem that Peter writes about in these verses. The problem of loving an unseen Savior is not permanent, but only temporary. A day is coming when faith will become sight, And the Apostle emphasizes the the certainty of that promise by saying that our inheritance, this is in verse 4, is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's it's perfect now. It will stay that way, waiting for us. It's ready to be revealed, Peter says in verse 5. Soon there will be praise and glory, this is verse 7, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at His unveiling. Peter is talking about something that we can't see now, but we'll see then the visible return of Jesus Christ, the day when we will see what is now unseen, and the longing of our hearts will be satisfied. You know, people sometimes say, Seeing is believing. It was that way for Nathaniel that I mentioned earlier, and for Thomas. The biblical perspective is the opposite. Believing is seeing. That's the way the Bible runs. The story of our salvation runs. If we believe, then one day we will see and we will be like Peter, eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, seeing Jesus with our own two eyes. Oh, I love the way that Thomas Boston described the sight that will greet every believer at the resurrection of the dead. He was imagining what the saints would behold in glory. He said they will see Jesus God and man, with their bodily eyes, because he will never lay aside his human nature, they will behold that glorious, blessed body which is personally united to the divine nature and exalted above principalities and powers in every name that is named. See if you can imagine this. There we will see with our eyes the very body that was born of Mary at Bethlehem and crucified at Jerusalem between two thieves. We will see the blessed head that was crowned with thorns, the face that was spit upon, the hands and feet that were nailed to the cross. We will see these things all shining with inconceivable glory because the glory of the God-man Christ will attract the eyes of all the saints. I am looking forward to that and want to look forward to it more and more as I grow through the Christian life, anticipating the day when what is unseen will become seen. I want to close by telling you another story, a story that was related to me this past year, a true story of a man named Lap V. Ho, and it's a story that illustrates, I think, the way that we can nurture our love for Jesus in this time of waiting for His appearance. It was the days leading up to the fall of Saigon in 1975, and Lap V. Ho was a professor there in the University of Saigon, fearing for his life. He went to the airport and fortunately he was able to book passage for his wife and son and also for their unborn daughter. And he sent them ahead to Bangkok and hoping to follow them just a few days later, he had a few other things to attend to, but he showed up a few days later and his passport was confiscated. He was thrown into prison for five years. He did everything possible to rejoin his family. He escaped and was recaptured no less than six times, only to suffer hardship and abuse afterwards. Finally, the seventh time, he escaped from camp. He walked to Cambodia, where he was promptly captured by the Khmer Rouge, and he was back in prison again. But he escaped with 30 others, and they were able to uh, take... um, kind of rickety craft out into the ocean. They were able to row their way to Thailand, and he was taken there to a camp for refugees. Now, meanwhile, the man's daughter, uh, man's wife, had given birth to their firstborn daughter, and she wanted her children to grow up loving their father. And so every day, she would take out the picture of their father, and she would speak to them about his nature, his character, his affection. She would talk about him and pray for him. Now, it's strange to say, but that little girl grew up without ever speaking a word. She seemed fully intelligent, and yet for some reason, maybe it was this sadness in her life, she was unable or unwilling to speak. Well, eventually the day of their reunion came and word of her husband's escape had reached this woman. She traveled with her children to the refugee camp so that they could be reunited. And when they arrived, Lap's daughter recognized him immediately. She ran up to him and threw her arms around him and very excitedly began to speak. And her parents say that she hasn't stopped speaking since. One day you will see Jesus for the very first time. You will recognize him for who he is. You will run to him and throw your arms around him. And you will speak his praises and never stop. Because for you, believing will be seeing. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would fill our lives with the hope of the risen Lord Jesus and give us a deeper longing, longing to see him face to face and teach us to live in the joy of that hope, whatever trials or difficulties may come. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.